This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. A few weeks back, there was this moment that really summed up the Biden administration's take on immigration at the moment. In an interview with ABC News, President Biden had a pretty clear message for people who were considering coming to the border. Don't. Yes, I can say quite clearly, don't come. And what we're in the process of getting set up, don't leave your town or city or community. Did that surprise you? Uh, it, it didn't surprise me because the government, uh, including the Trump administration and the Obama administration, had always made made those statements and, and sent that message. What, what, what surprised me, though, was that they keep doing it because it's not effective at all. This is Adolfo Flores. He covers immigration for BuzzFeed. Their messaging is never going to make its way down to the people who choose to, uh, to immigrate. Their decision to move is more informed by the conditions back home, you know, poverty, violence, um, or climate change, and the messaging they get from smugglers and, and their friends and family. Joe Biden is facing a test, a surge of migrants on the southwest border. But Adolfo says not only does Biden's rhetoric not count for much, it's not really a crisis of his making either. Here's the thing, like, when you look at the numbers, like, like the, the numbers have been increasing since spring of 2020. Like the surge that we're seeing has been happening since before Biden took office. But of course, that surge is Biden's responsibility now. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the number of people crossing is the highest it has been in 20 years. Families seeking asylum are waiting in dangerous Mexican border cities, vulnerable to extortion, kidnapping, and worse. And more and more desperate parents are opting to send their children into the United States alone. What's different now and has been different for at least a few months is the U.S. is processing unaccompanied minors and they're having a hard time keeping up with that demand. Like, you know, you have a lot of kids that they can't that they're going into Border Patrol facilities and they can't move them out fast enough. Today on the show, Joe Biden promised more humane treatment of immigrants. How is that promise holding up? I'm Henry Grobar, in for Mary Harris. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This story at the southern border is complicated. Since President Biden was inaugurated, he's announced a bunch of rollbacks of Trump-era policies. But for arriving migrants, by all accounts, it's still kind of a mess. For example, Biden scrapped the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP, better known as Remain in Mexico. And little by little, at a few locations along the border, the U.S. government has begun processing thousands of people seeking asylum in the United States. On the ground, though, many families still are waiting out asylum claims in Mexico. That's because the thing Biden hasn't rolled back is Title 42, a Trump-era provision that uses the pandemic as a justification to deny entry even to asylum seekers. And that means that even now, many migrants that make it to the U.S. get expelled to Mexican border towns, where conditions can be dangerous. I mean, the State Department tells U.S. residents, like, do not go to these cities. Like, it has some of the highest, I think, if not the highest, uh, like, travel warnings from the U.S. State Department. Just kind of unbelievable that our our policy for people seeking asylum to escape violence is to hang out indefinitely in these places that are so dangerous we won't even, we advise our own citizens not to not to go there. Right, yeah. I mean, that's, it's definitely something that, you know, like, when you look at it, you just have to really pause. Most of the immigrants in those border towns have not been able to secure a U.S. court date. Even those who are able to get their cases heard find themselves in makeshift asylum courts set up in tents or shipping containers along the border, speaking to judges on video conference. When you sit in the courtroom, you know, you just sort of saw how unprepared people were um, to make their case. Uh, you know, they were, they were struggling to fill out the form. They, were, they didn't understand the process. You know, the first hearing is usually a lot of like administrative stuff. And, you know, know, people would start talking about their case and the judge would be like, no, 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 this is not the time for that. You have to fill out this form, you know, get it translated and then come back. And that was devastating to people because many of them thought that, okay, I just have to wait three months in this city. That's really dangerous. But once I get to the court, I can tell the judge what happened to me and then he'll give me asylum. But that's not what happened. You know, you, people would have multiple hearings. And, and it was really hard for people to sort of keep going. They, they don't have lawyers? No. I mean, a lot of them don't because there are, A, not many attorneys who are willing to go across the border and work with people. And even if you could afford an attorney, which most people couldn't, who would fly down, right, and meet you at the tent court, there's a lot of hesitancy from some attorneys to do that because it was kind of hard you had to you know fly out block out a whole day for like maybe 20 minutes uh in, initially and then fly back like I, I talked to attorneys who were just like i wouldn't who, one of them told me i wouldn't have taken this case if i knew it was an mpp case yeah this quote from your article really stuck out with me where you, you talked to a lawyer who said that the mpp which popularly known as the remain in mexico program has quote it has weaponized geography to make asylum impossible. Yeah, that was a that was a researcher from 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 Track, but it really, I mean, I think it it speaks to how much harder it was to gain asylum in a system that is was already very hard. This tangle of policies at the border forces many asylum seekers to make impossible choices for themselves and for their families, like Felipe 
a Honduran immigrant who got stuck in limbo with his wife and children after losing his asylum case under the now-ended MPP. You reported on this one man and his family, um, Felipe, who kind of illustrates a lot of what is happening right now and has been happening with the asylum procedure on the southern border. Can you tell his story? Yeah, yeah. So so Felipe and, and his family were uh, among the first group of people to be uh, sent back to Mexico under the Remain in Mexico policy, also known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, to the city of uh, Matamoros in Mexico. And they fled uh, Honduras because they were being uh, targeted by the gangs, the gangs that try to recruit Felipe into working with them. And he said no. And he said, no, you know, he, he's Mormon. He's like, my, my, my religious beliefs don't allow me to do this. And so that sort of led to them being continuously targeted almost, you know, weekly. And his wife was at, you know, robbed at gunpoint while she was pregnant. Oh, my God. Yeah. So on, on the way to church. And it was he just said it was a very common occurrence. And he also said that, you know, the, he, he sort of believed that it was partially because he, the gang sort of knew that they wouldn't really fight back. Um, though I would say that's the case for most people. Uh, you know, they sort of there's not much they can do. Uh, um, once they, you know, the gangs are, are going after them. So he right before the pandemic and went through the procedure, uh, went, you know, went to his hearings at the border. And like his hearings were at these tent courts along the Rio Grande. You show up at like 4 a.m. If you had an 8 a.m. hearing, uh, you know, present yourself, get screened, get through. Uh, I believe he had three or four hearings and he was denied. After being denied for so long, and finding no relief in any of President Biden's rollbacks, Felipe and his wife decided to send their two daughters across the border alone. Unlike single adults and families, unaccompanied minors are taken in by CBP to start the process of being admitted to the U.S. That was something that I first saw back in, you know, 2019, uh, where parents are sort of looking kind of like calculating their odds and, and realizing we're, you know, we're living in tents in some cases out in the street. We keep going to these hearings and I see people before me go in and they all appear to lose. So if I lose, we're all going to have to go back home. And so they, they discovered that if they sent their kids across alone, they would be treated as unaccompanied minors. And then you also have to consider that the dangers they were in. So you had all these factors sort of weighing in on them. Uh, but particularly the danger, I would say, a lot of parents were just scared of the danger in Mexico and the danger back home. Right. So they, they, they fled their home where they think they'll be killed if they go back. They've arrived at the U.S. border and they've been sent to live in these Mexican border cities, which it sounds like are also extremely dangerous. And then sort of as they attend these basically hopeless tent court hearings they make this decision that I imagine must be one of the hardest things a parent can do, which is to, to send your kids off and, and think that they might be better off going alone. Yeah, no, it was it was very hard. I mean, it was, I, God, I spoke to so many parents who did this. It, it, it sounds, I think, I don't know that the, the gravity of it quite, it, it, you're able to sort of capture that when you write it. But when you hear these parents talk about it, it was such a hard decision. It sounds like both in the Trump era and even continuing into the current administration, 
there's a strong incentive to send your kids alone because if you get stopped with them, then your whole family gets sent back to Mexico. Yeah, no, exactly. Like it's it's one of the few avenues, especially right now, that is that is available to people. And and one thing that we you know me and other reporters have been asking is how many of the kids that are in U.S. custody right now as unaccompanied minors had border authorities previously encountered and either put an MPP or expelled under the uh, Title 42, the, the CDC, you know, the health statute, because that would sort of give us an idea of, of, of whether the increase in unaccompanied minors that we're seeing now is at least partially fueled by this bottleneck that the U.S. created you know, by expelling or, or, or sending people back to Mexico. When we come back, what happens when kids like Felipe's make it inside the United States? Here's how things are supposed to work. When an unaccompanied minor crosses the border, they get taken into custody by Customs and Border Patrol. Within 72 hours, they're sent to a shelter run by the Department of Health and Human Services. And then, in an ideal world, a family member applies to be their sponsor, gets vetted, and takes the child in. In reality, it's almost always more complicated, and it's much, much slower. CBP's emergency intake sites are overcrowded and unprepared for long-term stays. Kids aren't being transferred to HHS shelters fast enough, and vetting sponsors can take a long time. In the meantime, those CBP shelters keep filling up. There was this problem with the shelter space where uh, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, you know, had, had decreased their, their capacity because of the, of the pandemic. Uh, I think to about 50%. Uh, and so it was really hard for them to build up that bed space again, even after the CDC said, hey, we, I know we're in a pandemic, but we're just going to ignore that. And HHS, you're allowed to open up at a much larger scale. But, you know, it's not like flipping a switch. It's, it takes a long time to build up this bed space. And last week, a senior administration official said it could take months so that's not really going to help with the current situation. And what is the current situation? I mean, you, you've 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 reported from some of these places. What do you hear from from the kids? Uh, I, we haven't been able to talk to any of the kids. Uh, that's actually something that we've been really uh, trying to chase down right now. But it, I've talked to like family who are trying to get uh, kids out, or you mm-hmm. know, advocates, and they're just sort of frustrated with how long it takes um, and the conditions that they're being held in, you know, they're being held in, in, in Donna, Texas, there's this big tent facility uh, and it's over capacity. These kids are, uh, you know, they're held in these crowded, uh, they call them pods. Uh, and he, a lot of the kids told attorneys who, the, who went down there to interview them that they hadn't been able to make a phone call and that they were told you won't make a phone call until you're about to leave. And they don't know when that is. So it's really hard for these kids who crossed alone or were separated from a family member. And now they're in this facility. And now they're just like, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I can't call anyone. I can't go out. Uh, and it's crowded. And how long are they there? I mean, are we talking like a day or two or a week or two? Like, so I, I heard from one attorney that a kid, like some of the kids that they spoke to had been there for about seven 
or eight days, which is beyond the limit that CBP can hold an unaccompanied child. So under, under the law, CBP can only hold unaccompanied children for 72 hours, so three days. Uh, so they're, they're, they're definitely exceeding that in, in, in many of these cases. Do you think that the, the circumstances for these children have improved since the Trump administration? I mean, Biden promised a more humane system. I mean, maybe let's focus on the MPP Remain in Mexico program. That was something that Biden said he was going to do away with and very publicly said was over several weeks ago. But it sounds like it's not really for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I mean, for some of those the people in, in MPP, like they're still in this limbo, uh, even though the Biden administration said that he would undo it. And, you know, yeah, like you said, very publicly announced that MPP was over, but, but it's still going to take time to undo it. And for people like Felipe, you know, that time can come soon enough. I think it's also important to put like what we're seeing right now on the U.S. side uh in perspective, because before the U.S. was processing unaccompanied mi- uh, immigrant minors, they were being sent back to Mexico or to their home countries to very dangerous situations. And when you look at Mexico, like they were, you know, almost literally being put it like handed over to cartels. And, you know, I, 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 I've spoken to kids who were, you know, kidnapped alongside their parents who, you know, saw their moms get sexually assaulted. Or, or, you know, their parents beaten. And, and so, I mean, I, I think it's important to note that that's what, that was happening before these kids were being processed. Right. So in some ways, even if the conditions in um, some of these uh, facilities for children on the U.S. side of the border are not good, I imagine that advocates say this is an improvement over the previous procedure of sometimes sending these children back to the very violence that they had fled in the first place. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's definitely something advocates have said. But I, you know, but I, you know, on the other hand, I, as some of the same advocates are are taking the the Biden administration to task and saying, yes, but also you need to have a better system for dealing with unaccompanied minors because this is not the f- first or the second time that we have seen a spike like this, and the U.S. government appears to be caught off guard. Like you, you should be prepared there should be better way of, of, of sort of processing these children so they're not stuck in these camps. To come back to Felipe for a moment, what's he doing now? Does he know where his, his kids are? Yes, yes. So his kids are with family in the U.S. and he's living in a shelter in Matamoros and he's just sort of waiting. You know, he's in this holding pattern. And I, 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 I think it's... It's really hard to to understand the waiting. Like you, you just they're just waiting in a shelter. There's not much they can do, and there's no end in sight. There's no plan for them, and I think that's really psychologically damaging to a lot of people in his situation. And there's a lot of people in this in the same situation as he is. Adolfo, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Adolfo Flores is a reporter for BuzzFeed News. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Mary Wilson, Carmel Delshad, Elena Schwartz, and Daniel Hewitt. 
We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Henry Grabar. Mary Harris will be back tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.